Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 53, and today we begin the new series we discussed last time. That is our series on openings. Our goal here is, of course, like the interesting... It's interesting to look at openings of books and films and stuff in general. But uh, the overall purpose of what we want to do today, we're, we're wanting to start a series where we do some actual close analysis of the relationship between text and film. And as is generally our, our purpose here, we want to be thinking about this in terms of building tools, right? Figuring out how to do... Um, how to talk about some of the things I, my, my goal anyway is to kind of get at a thing which i feel like i often have kind of waved my hands in the direction of and i think that uh that this is true of many people that is we know that you you tell stories in one way in a visual form and you tell stories in other ways in written forms right like th there are things you can do in text that are easier to do in text than in film and things you can do in film you know these are some of the basic concepts that we talk about when we talk about how you just it is not possible to translate from a text into a into a into a visual medium without um you know, making changes without doing things a different way because it's a different form of storytelling. But how do they differ? And how can we see that in action? How can we uh, talk about that and really kind of put our fingers on what the differences are in how in those storytelling modes? Um, so we're going to be doing some close comparison today. Uh, the, uh, we're doing a sort of a case study. And the case study we're going to be doing is on the very openings. How do stories begin? What exactly are the storytellers establishing and how do they establish it when we look at these things in parallel? So here we are. I'm Here joined, of course, by Maggie Park, um, whom Hello. I forgot to introduce at the beginning of my intro there. Um, if you don't know me by now, where have you been? <laughs> exactly. So here we are. Um, and uh, we're going to today, our first case study is on The Hobbit. Um, so we're going to start. Uh, we're going to start with The Hobbit text. Um, so I'm going to just go ahead, Maggie, and read uh, yep. the one. Do a paragraph. Let's do a paragraph by paragraph. OK, so we're just going to read yeah, the first so couple paragraphs. And the plan is to just start with the text because that's what we all start with. So that's we're laying some foundation work. Here's our base. And then we're going to see what comes from this base. Right. So our specific question is essentially, what is Tolkien sort of accomplishing and how is he accomplishing it here? Right. Those, those are the things we're going to be looking at. So everybody knows the first sentence, right? In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. Okay, so in this first paragraph, um, we are introduced to hobbits, sort of. Actually, we're not introduced to hobbits. Hobbits are named, right? Right. And we know nothing about them. Right. The, the, the whole kind of premise of this paragraph is that you, A, have no idea what a hobbit is and therefore, B, have no idea what sort of a hole in the ground they live in. Right. But you know what a hole is and they're telling you, no, you don't. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. when I just said in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, you might have pictured a hole in the ground. Right. With like a mole in it. Or right. Something. But probably the hole in the ground that you pictured is incorrect. Right. So I'm going to so I'm going to immediately raise a couple of possibilities. Right. A nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell like perhaps the, a sort of hole you might dig in your backyard 
or something like that, right? Um, and it's not that kind of hole, nor a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. So notice the second one kind of upgrades from the first one, right? The first yeah. one is wet and nasty and filled with dead worms, right? I mean, you use the word oozy. Oozy, and it's like yes. Yeah. An oozy smell, right? That, 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 that's very visceral. So it's not enough just to imagine a non-gross hole, right? Like the first hole you imagine might have been disgusting. It's the second one, the bare, dry, dry, bare, sandy hole, right? Is like a cleaner, nicer hole in the ground than the first it's hole. Still a hole, yeah. right? But it's still just a hole in the ground. And notice immediately through his negatives, with nothing in it to sit down or or to eat, right? What we're thinking about eating? We're thinking about oh, furniture. There, 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 there could be furniture in a hole. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So notice there, he's all also already altered our sense of scale of this yeah. hole as well, right? When he just said a hole in the ground, you, you might imagine, as you said, you might imagine a mole hole or even like a hole your dog might dig in the backyard. A pothole, like who knows? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so now we're getting a new sense of the, um, of the scale of it, right? It was a hobbit hole and that means comfort. So not only are we to imagine furniture and are we to imagine meals, but- We're to be cozy. Cozy, comfortable, right? So it's still a hole in the ground, but it's now- a completely transformed idea. And that means the very first thing that we associate hobbits with is comfort. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and we assume furniture and good food. <laughs> furniture and good food. Yeah, exactly. These things need to be present in a hobbit hole. Right. So we even have a context for what sort of comfort we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. A, a, a place to sit down and eat a good meal in comfort. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then we, now we go on. It had a perfectly round door like a porthole, painted green, with a shiny yellow brass knob in the exact middle. The door opened onto a tube-shaped hall like a tunnel, a very comfortable tunnel without smoke, with paneled halls and floors tiled and carpeted, provided with polished chairs and lots and lots of pegs for hats and coats. The Hobbit was fond of visitors. The tunnel wound on and on, going fairly but not quite straight into the side of the hill. The hill, as the people for many miles around called it. And many little round doors opened out of it, first on one side and then on another. No going upstairs for the hobbit. Bedrooms, bathrooms, cellars, pantries, lots of these. Wardrobes, he had whole rooms devoted to clothes. Kitchens, dining rooms, all were on the same floor and indeed on the same passage. The best rooms were all on the left-hand side going in, for these were the only ones to have windows, deep-set round windows looking over his garden and meadows beyond, sloping down to the river. Okay. Notice we've still been told nothing about the Hobbit. Okay, we're told he's fond of visitors, right? There are a couple side comments that are made that tell us more directly, but we're still just describing the whole. Um, and having gotten that sort of the, the, the negative descriptions and had our expectations built a little bit, right, for what to expect, we now get the actual description, right? Um, and and it's a, a famous and remarkable description, right? Um, I've always thought, by the way, that the reason he specifies without smoke on a very mm. comfortable tunnel without smoke. I've always imagined that he's thinking of like a, a train tunnel, right? Which would be okay. full of smoke. Um, See, I was always thinking like medieval mead hall because they would have been very dark and smoky with fires and torches and whatnot. 
Yes, but I think throughout, the narrator seems to be appealing, and not only just throughout this description, but even throughout the book, the narrator appeals to the modern context of the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these Tolkien takes out in later uh, editions, um, but others, like, uh, for instance, his comparison of the tree that some of the dwarves were in to a Christmas tree um, mm-hmm. is another, and, uh, you know, the scream coming out of Bilbo like an express train coming out of a tunnel, right? Um, yeah. Is a, is a, another instance of like where he's he's making connection with the imagination of the modern child mm-hmm. readers, right? Um, so again, I think um, very comfortable. And I, I have to think that for a child in the 1930s in England, um, train tunnels would be the primary tunnels that like human sized tunnels, you know, not mm-hmm. animal tunnels, the, the primary tunnels they would have been in, right. Would have been railway tunnels. And, and, and those certainly would have been dark and sooty and full of smoke um, that they would have seen out the windows of the train, right. As they, uh, as they went in and out of them. Um, but um, anyway, um, so so more. What do we what do we see? And again, how I, I want to focus here on how he accomplishes what he accomplishes. Right. What he's and trying to what, do and how he's doing it and what the important information for us to receive is. So, you know, like you said, it was kind of nondescript so far, but we're really starting to see what's important yes. in this in this space and therefore what's important to this culture and this community, which we're going to learn more about. But you know, having windows that face a garden, we get mm-hmm. certain pastoral implications. Yep, and meadows uh, beyond. And of, yep, and lots and lots of pegs. We know that guests and friends come to visit that. Then there is kind of a, a sense of camaraderie and community. Yep, pantries, lots of these, so they clearly care about their food. Great, yep. I'm on board. Um, the clothes that was that was an interesting one. Like, okay, so they do wear clothing, whatever these hobbits are. And they care quite a bit about it, so they yes, have lots, lots of. Yes, he had whole rooms devoted to clothes. Is a remarkable plural, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that also makes me wonder: this specific Hobbit does does everyone have multiple rooms full mm-hmm. of clothing, or is it special that this one has yes. multiple? Mm. You do get the sense that this is a wealthy home, <clears throat> right? I mean, even like take for instance, dining rooms plural. Right? Why do you have plural dining rooms? in your house. Well, if you have like one super fancy dining room for special guests and one more casual dining room, right? I mean, if you've got multiple dining rooms, this is, um, there's that. It's central to your important community coming together moments. It suggests that both the, the whole rooms devoted to clothes and the plural dining rooms, even the plural bathrooms, Right. The plural bathrooms suggests he might have a lot of guests, as again, the pegs for hats and cloaks also suggests. Right. But these are these would be stay in guests who would come and and stay for a while because of the multiple bedrooms, the multiple bathroom. He might also have a very large family for all we know yet. Right. We don't know anything about the Hobbit. Again, we don't even know his name yet. Right. Now, you know, he's a key. That's about it. Right. Peeking ahead at the first sentence of the next paragraph we can see that he is going to call him a very well-to-do hobbit, right? So the the sort of, but, but even before he just comes out and tells us that, 
he shows it to us. We're fully ready to hear that he is a well-to-do hobbit based on the, uh, the, the scope of the, of the house that he has, right? And notice how even there that expectation has been shifted uh, from the first assumption that when he says hole in the ground, we're going to assume some kind of, you know, something you might dig with a shovel or something like that, right, in the backyard. Um, now it's palatial, right? This is not only <laughs> comfortable. Um, this is this is like a mansion, right? Yeah. Um, this is like a great house, you know, like an English great house. This is a complete tangent, but it's what came to my mind. Uh, I did a, a water tour of Seattle once. Um, so on a boat, you know, looking back at the city and you can see Bill Gates's house from the boat. They pointed out on the tour. That's mm -hmm. where Bill Gates lives. You can only see 20% of his home. 80% of it is built into the hill. And I was like, right. like a hobbit? Like a hobbit, yes. Nobody else on the boat thought that was appropriate. But, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when you're talking about palatial and mansions, building back into the the hill yes mm -hmm. yes well to do yeah exactly um yeah um even there's something even about the phrase the best rooms right mm. the best rooms were all on the left hand side um which again suggests like first of all such a wealth of rooms that uh you know, you can, we can delineate. Yeah, delineate between the best rooms and the 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 the, the least good rooms. Um, and that again, there's like a pride in having a best room. Like yeah. I'm putting effort into making this one the nice one to host people in. Yes, 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 exactly. Um, sorry, I was just noticing a thing. Deep set round windows overlooking his garden. I was focusing on the pronoun his garden. Right. Mm. Um, so this is, but the way it, his garden and meadows beyond are the meadows his too? Like, mm. does, does he own the whole land? Like, are those his his garden and his meadows, or is it just his garden and there are meadows beyond? Like, it's a there little uncertain meadows. how much of the land he owns, right? How much is sloping down to the river, which is probably not his river, right? But again, we're getting this sense of this sense of wealth. Um, mm -hmm. Now, notice how. Um, Notice again how he, so his, his approach, Tolkien's approach here. In the hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And he starts entirely on the hole, right? Mm -hmm. Both of the first two paragraphs are about the hole in the ground, not yet about the hobbit. But of course, we're now fully prepared to learn what we're going to learn about the hobbit, right? He has, in fact, introduced his main character. And notice, so first of all, the indirection of that. He's setting mm. the stage. And he does this to some extent with mere physical description. Perfectly mm -hmm. round door, right, painted green with a shiny yellow brass knob in the exact middle, right? That's just a description of what we would see if we were there, right? The door opened on a tube-shaped hall like a tunnel um, with paneled walls, floors tiled and carpeted, provided with polished chairs. Um, notice, by the way, and this is so classic Tolkien, um, you read this and you get a sense of like he's described this thing in intimate detail, but he hasn't. What mm -hmm. um, what color are the floor tiles? What kind of carpet does he have? Right, like he leaves. Yeah. He this is like, Tolkien's descriptions will be so detailed and so itemized like this, and yet he leaves so much to the imagination. Mm -hmm. um, 
so common. Um, the way that Tolkien manages to invite our imaginations along, right? He invoked, like, yeah. It's impossible not to create a detailed picture in your head, right? And that's and that's what's so powerful. I think we're going to get to adaptation, but I think that's what's so powerful about text and the initial steps of adaptation is text on page and picture in our head. Yes. Before you're even looking at film, before you're looking at radio, it's text to head. So the fact that he's describing with words that we do know, round door, tiled floor, carpets, we know what carpets and tiles are, but my tile and my carpet are going to look totally different than your tile and carpet in this movie theater. Right. You know? And even and things like polished chairs, what sort of mm -hmm. wooden, probably wooden chairs. What kind of chairs? What are they? Do they have arms? Do they have backs? Like what kind of chairs are we talking about here? Then that also then completely world builds, which is wonderful yes. with Tolkien. But, you know, when we're going to be talking about adaptations later and we've talked a lot about world building and what that does, it's not just telling me middle earth is a place here's a map yes it's saying we value handcrafted furniture and there are artisans mm -hmm. that spend hours you know sanding this down and polishing it up and tiling hand by hand mosaics or whatever it happens to be yeah that's building a community that's building an economy and a hierarchy of classes and all sorts of things that come into play we're only on the third paragraph right <laughs> Right, exactly. Yes, it's true. But again, the thinking of the description. Again, the point I would make is that this is this happens so often. Um, Tolkien effortlessly gets you to supply, like he gives you more than enough to make it almost inevitable that you have formed a visual picture in your own head. But he doesn't just push his own visual picture into your head, apart from the couple details, like the green door and the yellow brass knob we're told almost nothing about color and that's right? so empowering we get yes. to fill in blanks and yes. then therefore you feel like you're part of the creation yes but it's done so subtly that people don't often don't realize mm -hmm. the where the gap is like where they're filling in gaps with their own imagination because again Tolkien just draws it out of you effortlessly right um, and so you have formed a very clear picture in your head. And very often, again, I've seen this so many times, I've seen this in myself so many times, you forget where the lines are between what your imagination supplied and what the, uh, the text actually says. And this is, not, this is not unique to Tolkien, right? Great writers often do this. This is... Um, uh, this is a, 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 a an almost universal phenomenon. And you notice it when you go back and read a book, especially when you haven't read since your childhood, like one which lived in your imagination as a child. And you go and I'm not talking about that horrible experience when you go back and you realize, oh, my gosh, this book is horrible. And I didn't realize it when <laughs> I was a kid. I mean, the good experience when you go yeah. back and you find that the book is still good. But when you almost always what you find is that it doesn't actually say half of the things that you remember, right? Or like you realize that the description of an action sequence or something like that even is like really, it's just a couple sentences. But it allowed you. Right. And, you have, and, and you've held it in your imagination for decades, yeah. right? Since you last read it. But now you go back and you realize what that all came out of my head, right? That was drawn out of my own head um, by the book. And this is one of the most complicated things, I think, when we, like, one of, 
One of the things to notice when we begin thinking about adaptation and how this starts is that one of the techniques that writers have, right, that good writers do, is how they can describe things and discuss things in order to engage the imagination of their readers. Mm -hmm. It really is about a story. When a story is successful, a book is successful, it's because the thing it has created in your mind is successful, right? Yeah. And this is why sometimes, again, going back to that other uh, experience that I think we most of us have had, when you go back and you read a book and you find it was a horrible book, right? Um, even though you know that you loved it as a child, well, why? What, why did that happen? Right. That happened because you made it good in your head. Right. Mm. The author is not actually a good writer. The book doesn't hold together well, but that's OK. You smoothed it out in your head. It was enough <laughs> to see yeah. with in, at your own at the level of experience you were at. Right. That you didn't need as much. Right. You were a good editor and you were able to you were willing to run with world it that worked for you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the story in your head was a great story. And this is, of course, this is why there's the risk right, of going back and rereading books, because you might find that actually it was just it was just the story in my head, right? It wasn't actually the book itself that was good. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, so how this <clears throat> how this happens, and this is going to be important because I think this, to me, is one of the fundamental differences between text and film, right? Is that film, film doesn't do the same, like this fundamental thing that is, I think, essential to what books do is fundamentally different in the mm -hmm. in the in the film genre right i mean you just can't you can suggest things right you can but you're supplying the visuals you are giving the visuals yeah and yes. there's a lot of work on this about how visuals have changed the actual writing structure as well it's like more modern writers have kind of fallen into a trap of being a little too descriptive trying to write a screenplay instead like of a book yeah they're writing like a cinematic experience mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, the, the writing of Tolkien is, is just hasn't been really replicated. But absolutely, you know, the fact that a film is supplying those visuals, they're taking that ability to create that imagination yeah. away from you. And they're yeah. showing you exactly what it is. Right. Exactly. There's, there's other ways to create imagination, but the specific visual element. Exactly. Yeah. That's Yeah. Now look at how Tolkien builds off of the visual element. It just is still in the second paragraph, right? The asides, all of the asides that he gives here, right? Mm -hmm. um, not just clarifications like a very comfortable tunnel without smoke, right? That's one where he's, he's, he's prompting your imagination to make sure when you imagine a tube-shaped hall like a tunnel, again, I think it's a railway tunnel, every British kid is going to be imagining when they hear a tube-shaped hall like a tunnel, right? And then he's like, no, 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 not like that, right? Without smoke. Now picture paneled walls, floors tiled and carpeted, polished chairs, right? Um, so it's not just that. It's where he explicitly starts prompting us, like where he starts providing information about the Hobbit himself and not just indirect information. Because it's not only that we can glean things as we were before from like the rooms that he describes and everything else, right? But we get those asides. And lots and lots of pegs for hats and coats. The Hobbit was fond of visitors. And notice there are two sort of levels there. A pure physical description would just describe the pegs, right? And then? We're told explicitly that these are pegs for hats and coats, right? So that's the first prompting that we get. And then we get the second aside, 
the conclusion you can draw from that is that the Hobbit was fond of visitors, right? So we're not, it's not just our visual imagination that's being supplied in this paragraph. He's leading us to draw conclusions from it, right? The Hobbit was fond of visitors. Um, so we're being kind of coached through this, mm -hmm. right? In a fairly direct way. And then he keeps going on. No going upstairs for the Hobbit, right? So now again, we're imagining the this, the description of the bill of the of the rooms and the layout and stuff, um, and uh, and now we're, we're imagining him living in it, right? No going upstairs for the Hobbit, and now all those parentheses, pantries, lots of these wardrobes. Mm -hmm. He had whole rooms devoted to clothes. Um, uh, you know, the, the, those moments, those little additions that he's supplying there. Um, are some of the main things, like when we were talking about the interesting and important elements of this description from the start, we immediately focused in on those, right? Because the narrator pushes us. He draws attention to the pantries. Make sure we don't miss that, to the plural pantries, right? Yep. He makes sure that we um, uh, pay attention to the wardrobes, right? And expand off of that. Whole rooms devoted to clothes. Um, so this is another really interesting technique, of Tolkien's here. He has given us the description and he's left us to draw many of our own conclusions. Like he doesn't comment on everything, right? But he comments on it up to, he pushes us, right? He prompts he, us to draw conclusions about the Hobbit. And he does give you a floor plan. You know, I feel like from this, mm -hmm. you really could draw, you know, a, a basic blueprint of what this space looked like. There's enough yes. detail that it yep. feels very accurate and i think that's really key to him is he's world building to a very believable space and we now are in the world and then he introduces a character yes and that's key it's like a portal fantasy without mm -hmm. the, the fantasy it's just we're just there it, right we are. and that's important right um mm -hmm. we still don't even know what a hobbit is right, right? we have no idea like is it a kind of animal is, I mean, like literally we haven't the faintest idea of what species, like we have nothing to attach that word Hobbit to. The only thing that we're given is hole in the ground. We're supposed to attach hole in the ground from the first sentence. Right. Mm -hmm. And we've been in the hole in the ground describing it ever since. And we've now built all these other associations. We know enough. I mean, clearly if he's got, you know, clothes and dining rooms and kitchens and pantries, he's not a kind of animal. Right. right. So like, we, you know, we already yeah. know that he's a person of some sort. But he could be, I mean, I'm thinking Narnia. He could be some sort of creature. Right, like we don't, right. Like we don't Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Like, what world are we in? Mr. Tumnus? Where are we? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, he could be a dwarf. He could be, a, I mean, that. there's, you know. Yeah, a Redwall-esque universe. Right. Who knows? It could be. It could be, conceivably. Um, okay, next paragraph. So we can, yeah. Let's keep going. This hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure, and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained... well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. I love that paragraph. I love. <laughs> yes. Love. It just, it takes a description and turns it into a challenge. And mm -hmm. this guy's somehow a rebel. And it, it, all, of a sudden we have an, all of a sudden we have a narrator too. Like, well, you'll see, you know, it, yes. it's very conversational. 
Yes, we have a narrator who direct who addresses us in the second person. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that is an important thing, and that voice of the narrator is a, a really important element of this story. Right. Um, we know that we are being told uh, we are being told a story, like we are in the hands of a storyteller who has established a relationship with us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and this. We already got hints of this with like all of those clarifications, right? Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole. He hasn't addressed us directly, but you can see he's addressing our, our, our thoughts, our expectations, right? And even names it. This is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure. Like, yes. gather round, ye folk. And, you know, it, it feels <laughs> yes. very much like a call to adventure, a call to a story. Right. What it is not is just some kind of sense of like we are. So like. We know the answer to to the question, what is this text we're reading, right? This is a story that is being told to us by a particular person, Mm -hmm. right? This is not just us, like, peering in through some magic window on a thing that's happening, right? This is a story. Um, This is a story that's being told. Um, uh, Yes. Um, Oh, and Edith, you're absolutely right that uh, uh, Tolkien did... Well... I don't think it's necessarily the idea of having a narrator's voice that he hated. It's what he what he disliked later on is that Tolkien was. Um, it's actually a really interesting parallel between Tolkien and Ursula Le Guin here. Um, both of them, when they started writing, um, no, both of them later in their careers, when they reflected back on the things that they wrote at first, felt like they started off by playing the game. Um, the game which they then later went on to change. With Le Guin, it was playing along with the uh, the masculine domination of the fantasy world um, that she regretted. She felt like she was playing the game in having all of like her main characters be men uh, and stuff because that was like what you did in fantasy and what she felt she had to do. Um, and later on, kind of regretted having played along. Uh, and this is, of course, in the in the in the Earthsea, um, uh, uh, the 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 beginning of the Earthsea world um, with Tolkien. He was doing the same thing. The game he was playing along with was fantasy books are for children. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to tell a fantasy book, I'm going to tell it as. A, and so he wrote it. It's the tone. It's the um, this sort okay. of gently condescending tone. Uh, this 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 sort of narrator was very very common in um, uh, in children's literature of the time, and so he was he was playing along writing a juvenile book, and um, that's the the thing specifically that he regretted doing later on, um, that he should have just told this as a straight up like you know fantasy story without having to make it specifically a children's book. Uh, mm-hmm. In the way that he did, but I don't know that necessarily he would totally. Um, so again, it's not like the technique of having a narrator necessarily that he didn't like. It was the posture of the narrator in this kind of kids' book uh, frame, essentially. Yes, the Princess and the Goblin. Eric does exactly the same thing. Um, there's an even funnier narrator uh, in one of Tolkien's favorite children's fantasy works, The Marvelous Land of Snurgs, um, which highly recommend. Um, love the narrator's voice in the in the mar- in the the marvelous land of snurgs um but um but anyway yeah it, it was totally a thing uh and um and and that's what that's what tolkien was was sort of was was doing but anyway uh 
he provides a narrator's voice and we're um, he's addressing us now notice he turns to the hobbit but notice what he's, he still doesn't answer the question of what a hobbit is and what a hobbit looks like right this hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit so he starts telling us about hobbit society right and he he still sort of acts as if um he still sort of acts as if um um we already know what hobbits are so that all uh -huh. he has to do is specify like what is this particular hobbit's relationship to hobbit society right uh -huh. um keep in mind this is of course something wholly impossible it would seem to do in a film because like if you're gonna show <laughs> a hobbit on screen you're gonna show what they're like show in some way right we still have almost no information about what yeah. hobbits look like. They could be bright purple for all we know, right? Um, and we're still not, we're still given nothing about that. Um, yeah. Oh, and I'm sorry, look, just look, finishing up with that. Edith was asking, why would a children's fantasy be a bad thing? It's not. Mm -hmm. What you have to remember, and it's hard to recreate this, Tolkien sort of fixed this problem so thoroughly that it's hard for us to put ourselves back into this. Um, but basically, the the issue was that it was writing the idea of writing fantasy for adults at all or for adults reading fantasy at all was like deeply deeply countercultural um and so in order to write if you wanted to write fantasy you could only do it right. as a children's right. book like it was the only acceptable and that's the rule that he wanted to break just like le guin eventually wanted to break the whole male domination of fantasy genre, um, which she did. Um, and, you know, and she did that very effectively. Um, but so for, it was, a, it was a, it was, it was a very serious, like very broad cultural uh, thing, which Tolkien really chafed at. Um, but um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not that he just liked children's books um, or thought that children's fantasies were bad things. It was that, again, he felt that he was playing the game. He wanted to write fantasy. Um, I remember in Tolkien's life, this is the mid-1930s, he'd been writing Silmarillion material for decades by this time. Like, he had aspirations of writing and publishing serious fantasy. Um, and so the idea that he actually got his break in publishing by well he didn't exactly sell out but i think in his later days he felt he felt a bit almost like that i think that's that's what why he disliked the hobbit because he felt like the mm -hmm. hobbit was kind of a sellout um and a compromise basically but anyway it's um uh, it's complicated that um, makes a lot of sense though it was him playing the game you yeah, know yeah he was he he did in the end play the game you play by the rules until you're good enough to break the rules <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. and you know and again both uh, you look at it with both tolkien and Le Guin, and they look back and say and it's not that they like think that they did a bad thing either one of them but they look back at those early works and say it makes me uncomfortable in some ways because mm -hmm. i see myself playing the game which i have mm -hmm. now stopped playing and you know so yeah that's why um Le Guin had a complicated relationship with Earthsea and, and did some things, right? Wrote some new Earthsea books in a different direction later on. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and, also, and also why Tolkien was never really comfortable with The Hobbit in his later years. But anyway, okay, back to what he's doing here. Um, okay, so 
I love that we're 40 minutes in and we're still talking about the text, but this is important. This is so important. I, this is important. Yeah, like yeah. all of this foundation is saying like how we're telling this story and what's important for us to know as readers participating in this story. So that's yes. why we're spending so much time on it. He frames it. One effect, I think, and Maggie, tell me what you think about this. He's doing... Um, He's painting the picture, but he's still leaving a hole in the middle, right? That is the protagonist, Bilbo himself. He doesn't start with Bilbo. He does Bilbo last, right? Even mm-hmm. here, when he's finally talking about the Hobbit, he's talking about the culture of the Hobbit. He's talking. He's telling us about the expectations that they have, right? The kind of respect, like there are rich Hobbits and not rich Hobbits. He's telling us a little bit about their economy and their culture. He's talking about the respect that they have because they're rich. That tells us something else about their culture, right? Talking about how he never had adventures or did anything unexpected. And it's apparently a compliment to say that you could tell what right. he would say on any question without the bother of asking him. Right. Predictability is a good thing. Right. This is a, this is a um, doing things altogether unexpected is questionable. It will lose the neighbor's respect when he starts doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the effects, I think, of crea- of leaving this sort of hole uh, in the middle, which he's not going to leave permanently. Like we're going to learn stuff about Bilbo. Right. He's not going to be just a cipher, um, but it enables it puts reader in the position of imagining themselves into the middle of this world, right into the middle of this culture. Um, They are connecting with Bilbo exactly because they don't start off encountering Bilbo like a person, right? They start off seeing, stepping into the world around it, right? Mm -hmm. And then into the culture. And they're like, and that puts them side by side with Bilbo from the very beginning. Right. Yep. Um, You know, I, this makes me think, especially after our discussion last week, um, this, I think, is the one thing of all the things in her book. This is what Stephanie Meyer did best in Twilight. Bella is like the biggest empty shell of any yep. protagonist I have ever read. Yeah. Right. And the number of conversations I've had about the point of view of that, because that's first person narrator. So mm-hmm. having it be the I, the I, the I. A hundred percent. You have an empty shell that you're putting yourself into and falling in love with these characters. And, you know, that that is a strength that you can get to see this stuff through their eyes. Yes. So, yeah, similarly, I think that's what this is doing. It's painting a very vivid picture of where I am and how this world works and what's important. But I'm still occupying that space because nobody else has occupied it yet. You haven't given me that that person. Right. I'm not sitting down to, to watch the story yet because I'm in the story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that the way that and again, so much of this and it's one of the things that, that I um, find myself emphasizing when I'm thinking about the tools that the writer is using um, to engage what the writer is accomplishing here, what Tolkien is accomplishing in these first three paragraphs is how our imagination is being instructed right how our imagination is being drawn and this point about the hole in the middle of the story so far again it's not he's not going to leave it empty stephanie meyer kind of does like bella never really is anybody a lot of development there no she's which is again enormously effective because it enables Mm. the reader to continue projecting themselves into the bella shape right for the whole story right Mm -hmm. and that was clearly very very effective um but uh 
Tolkien's going to do something different. He's going to give us Bilbo, and Bilbo is going to be, uh, 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 but 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 we don't leave. He doesn't displace us, right? If we're imagining ourselves into the midst of this, we're imagining ourselves right there with Bilbo, right? We become yeah. Bilbo's companion before he has any other companions, right? Um, and we, um, because we have, we understand the home he lives in, the world he lives in. That's 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 how Tolkien brings us in before we ever get. Bilbo himself sitting there, sitting there on the yard, right? Yeah. Um, uh, okay. So let's look at the films. Um, we, of course, it's the very next paragraph where we're finally going to get what is a hobbit? I suppose hobbits need some description nowadays, right? We're going to, we finally get into the description of a hobbit. Um, and again, very strongly with that narrator interrupting himself, right? Um, so again, we get that strong narrator's voice. We're not going to talk about this paragraph. It's fine. The, uh, you know, we'll get lots of detail to help us picture what hobbits look like, finally, in the fourth paragraph. Um, but I want to stop there and go to the films, because this, I think, is... I do, the, yeah, I do too, but I also want to point out there's so much more text about Bilbo without it being about Bilbo, right? Like, yes. we get so much peripheral description about his family and upbringing and things like that. And hobbits in general. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we have Gandalf there. So I I love that there is still like a continued introduction of Bilbo before we actually even get to see Bilbo. Like yes. we yes. don't know who he is yet, really. His name's mentioned, but it's not like a and this is Bilbo. It's <laughs> it's very much a talking around it situation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it, the fact that all of these descriptions are in the plural. They are inclined to be fat in the stomach, they wear no shoes, they dress in bright colors. Mm -hmm. So is Bilbo wearing bright colors? Probably because Probably. we're told hobbits tend to, but you know, we're not, mm -hmm. um, yes. we haven't seen him. Yes. Yeah. Is, um, is, is Bilbo's face good natured? Well, we're told hobbits faces tend to be good natured. So it probably is. But again, we're not given a physical description of Bilbo. Like, does mm -hmm. he have a big nose? Does he have heavy eyebrows? Does he have, I mean, we're, all we're given is here's what hobbits in general are like. Now back to Bilbo, right? Our right. own particular hobbit. Um, and again, that's so typical. Again, you, where again, people will then they will build from this this very clear picture of Bilbo, not even realizing how much of that is coming out of their own imagination. Um, okay, okay. Yes. All right. So let's talk about um, let's talk so about. We've the got films. Rankin Bass and Peter Jackson are the two that we're looking at. Yes. Um, and we're only looking at introduction, and we're only looking at until the point when Gandalf arrives. So Corey and I were talking for a second before we started. And the thing that struck out to me the most, because I'd totally forgotten this about Peter Jackson's Hobbit, is how stinking long he takes to get there. Holy cow. Holy yes. cow. Yes. 13 minutes. Yes. 13 minutes for Gandalf to appear. It's a minute and 38, I think, mm -hmm. in the Rankin-Bass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. For a lot of different reasons. I mean, I was saying Rankin Bass is like shoo, and and Corey was like, that should be the the, the subtitle of the of the film. Shoom. Um yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, but different reasons for doing that too. So, you know, Rankin Bass, we jump straight into telling a story. Just yes. watch the story. We're just telling you the story. It's it's eighty eight minutes or something, right? It's like super quick. Just jump really right quick, in. Really quick. Peter but, Jackson. Oh, my God. I mean, first of all, it came after the trilogy. So there's so much referencing yes. back to the trilogy. Yes. 
Yes. And I was taking all these notes and was like, is that concerning hobbits is playing in the background? Like even the music is harkening back to what we know from the Jackson trilogy. So like there's a lot of fan service played to that, which I think is still a different kind of world building. Mm-hmm. We're establishing ourselves in this space. Look, it is still Middle Earth. You're familiar with this. Hey, look at Bilbo in his hole that you know, you know Frodo, you know this book, you know, you know. Yes. All those visual references to keep us in the world that we already know it just keeps going and going and going and going and going and to place us directly in it right like mm-hmm. having frodo go out to nail up the no it no admittance except on party business sign on the mm-hmm. gate right the post the re- replies to the invitations right that frodo is 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 carrying in um and puts on the puts on you know bilbo's desk and then, of course, in the end, Frodo setting off to go meet Gandalf. Mm-hmm. So to that, read that opening scene that we know from Fellowship, right? The film goes to elaborate lengths to place this not just in the world that we're familiar with, but to time it precisely. Yeah. Right. This takes place immediately before the beginning. Right. This is a. In- th- yeah. And in that respect, it's like fan fiction, you know, like we're going to fill in some of the gaps that we missed earlier before because we know you like it yes. and and it will work. And But building that in as a frame narrative, I thought was a really interesting choice. And I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are because I don't really have a clear idea of like, why would they do that? I've got a few ideas, but like building this frame narrative, it's not necessary for The Hobbit. We no. don't have a frame narrative in The Hobbit. Why did they bring this in? And personally, I always look at everything from a business side of it. So there was so much fan service, <laughs> right? There was so much strife in the yes. development. Oh, of right, the right, yeah, 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 of of changing the director and delays and all sorts of stuff. There's so much strife that I think they were just trying to reassure everybody, like, "You're gonna like this. We swear, it's Peter Jackson. It's gonna be fine." <laughs> right, right. It's Peter Jackson's Middle Earth. Um, this is one of the things that is hardest to compare. The Rankin Bass and the uh, Jackson Hobbit films, because the Rankin Bass was obviously n- going out of its way not to assume that the viewers would have any context at all for this. Right? What what is a Hobbit? What is Middle Earth? What kind of story are we listening to? At are we you know we 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 watching at all? Um, Peter Jackson's Hobbit opening, of course, has his entire trilogy and the world, you know, the he knows he knows that hundreds of millions of people saw the Lord of the Rings films before he, you know, he plans the opening of the Hobbit films. And yeah. so he places it. He has a whole context to invoke um, that he that he goes into there. Um, and that's so. Here's the. Here's the interesting thing to me there, though. You'd think that would make it quicker and easier, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, like that Rankin-Bass is building absolutely from scratch, and they do it in 90 seconds, whereas Peter Jackson, who has, like, context he can snap his fingers and and, and point to, takes ages upon ages to get there, Mm -hmm. right? Now, he... um, um, uh, yeah, he, he he. Obviously, there are other things that he's doing. I so I, I would want to separate. Let's see, there are 
two pieces of two jobs, I think, that the opening, that 13 minutes or whatever is doing in the Peter Jackson Hobbit opening. Um, there are two different, at least two different jobs that are being done there. One is to tell the story of Erebor, right? To set up, we get the whole, the whole the backstory, whole. right? Thor's Which is interesting king. that they think we need to know all of that now up front. Yes. Yes. They think it's very important to be a prologue. You have to know the strife. Yes. Because what that means is when Thorin Oakenshield shows up at Bilbo's house, we already know him and mm -hmm. we know his whole story. Mm -hmm. um, his whole, like, all, you know, Richard Armitage just have to show his face, right, at Bag End. And we, we know, like, it's freighted with all of this weight of history that we've already been given in that long, long opening sequence, um, uh, which history is given at the, you know, in the middle of chapter one of The Hobbit. Right. Um, but it's but it's quite a different effect. So that's so there's there's the whole Erebor history thing that we're given. And then there's the connection between this and The Lord of the Rings. Right. Which is first sort of world building. Um, and, uh, um, and second, um, it's established. So the one thing that makes in a sense, really, I mean, it's hard to compare the two in some ways because the Hobbit films were, well, they were sequel films. They were prequel films, right? But they were absolutely dependent upon the films that came before, you know, and, yeah. and assuming, and that's not to say that no one has ever seen the Hobbit films first before they saw the Lord of the Rings films, but it is saying that, um, uh, that the assume the films absolutely assume that you need to know, um, where these fit. Right. And yeah. what, and what they're not doing is having to establish from scratch what Middle-earth is, what The Hobbit is. I mean, in this way, looking at the opening of the Fellowship of the Ring film, um, which I think we'll do uh, next time, is in some ways a more interesting comparison to the open, like comparing the opening of the Fellowship of the Ring and the opening of uh, uh, of the film, like the, the book and film is going to be interesting because there's, they're doing different work there also, right? Um Except it's reversed. Tolkien's opening of the Fellowship of the Ring, spoiler, assumes you've read The Hobbit, right? Yeah. Um, whereas Peter Jackson's film doesn't assume anything. Hmm. Um, so we have the reverse situation here, where the opening of The Hobbit assumes you know nothing. You can't know anything, right? Uh, and then, uh, I mean, at least not when Tolkien published the book, you couldn't possibly know anything. Um and of course, Peter Jackson's is absolutely relying um, on uh, um, on the other. So Peter Jackson is saying, "You are familiar with the Shire. You're familiar with Bilbo. You're familiar with Frodo, right? You remember the party that is coming. Um, even the flashback to Bil to young Bilbo meeting mm -hmm. Gandalf for the first time." 
is a connection to the party. We've got Gandalf's fireworks. And now that that's in the book, right? That Bilbo as a child attended. Presumably that was the old Took's birthday party that uh, Bilbo recalls in the, in the, in, you know, during his conversation with Gandalf in the book. Um, we're not told that, but which means in the film, all we're given is the connection between Bilbo's memorable party that he's going to have at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, which is that same day, right? I mean, it's, it's, or like it's tomorrow. I mean, it's immediately before, right? No, Bilbo says, is, is it today? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, that's my least favorite line in the whole opening of the Hobbit film. Um, the long expected part. Bilbo saying, is it today? As if Bilbo wouldn't know that it was know. the day of his party, which had been planned and anticipated for months and months. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's, I can't, I don't, they lose me at that moment. Like, I'm so glad my camera froze on that shock on my face. I'm like, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yep. um, I was just looking back through my notes where you're doing that. And the uh, with the Bakshi one, the one that struck me. Oh, the Rankin Bass. Sorry, I yes. did that again. Rankin Bass. <laughs> yes. I did that earlier too. And I wrote in my notes, Bakshi. No, Rankin Bass. Yeah. Rankin Bass. The the bit that got me um long ago before recording history before recording history, man shared his days with elves and dwarves. Yes. That line happens twelve seconds into the the opening. So all of a sudden we're setting it in our world. Yes. This before I record and then yes. we see a you know, he sets it in the world that we are currently living in. So in that respect, I thought that was very Tolkien-esque yes. of just painting this world that we are familiar with, putting us there. Yep. But he does it in 12 seconds. Yep. Yep. And Peter Jackson, I don't feel like I'm ever no there. I'm nostalgic to the trilogy. Yes. But I'm not physically in that space. I am definitely watching that space. Yes, absolutely. That's a very different perspective as a viewer and as a creator to be making these films, telling a story where you're sitting in it, telling a story where you're sitting at it. And there's another decision that Rankin Bass makes that goes along with that. Right. I was talking about how, especially in chapter one of The Hobbit, the voice of the narrator uses modern references. Right, mm-hmm. which sometimes people take for anachroni- for anachronisms in Tolkien's world building, like the reference to express trains. Right, that's not an anachronism. It's the modern narrator talking to the modern reader, the modern narrator, the narrator who never pretends to be contemporary. This story never claims to be an ancient text that we are reading. Right, it is a modern text with a modern narrator who is telling us a story from ancient history. Right, somewhere else. And but but he's a modern person speaking to modern readers. And so that's why we get those, uh, especially those similes and things which are to modern things. Um, But notice the the Rankin-Bass film also not only has a narrator figure, they um, they kind of solidify that with the book image at the beginning Mm -hmm. or at the opening image of the Rankin-Bass Hobbit is a a book with a uh, uh, with a fancy capital letter at the beginning and a little picture of mm-hmm. a hobbit hole and the opening sentence of the hobbit, right? So we have... Um, Very ex- much like the wonderful world of Disney. Yes. <laughs> opening up a story. Yes, exactly. It's an explicit link to, to a book, right? It's not the book because it, it goes away from the hobbit text after the first sentence, right? But it does do that same kind of movement, exactly as you described, that, like, this is the ancient history of our world, which Tolkien does in The Hobbit. It takes him to, like, paragraph six or something to finally get there. Um, 
But again, the voice of a narrator and the voiceover, we have a narrator figure in the Rankin-Bass Hobbit as well, right? We don't just see the text. It gets read to us by a narrator um, who then, whose voice we're hearing through the entire opening sequence. Um, and we don't get him continually, right? But we do get him at other points in the film as well. Like we are reminded and that's and that is very similar to the way that Tolkien deploys his narrator. We we don't we're not always thinking about the narrator. Um, mm-hmm. That is, we're not constantly aware of the narrator's voice, but we never totally lose sight of it either. And yeah. um, uh, and the same is true in the Rankin Bass Hobbit. So they have chosen to establish a similar kind of frame to what the Hobbit established. So right away, this is one way in which the the film is trying to do something that is like what the um what the book is doing right yeah um but then there's this move that they make they show the picture of the hobbit hole right in the book that they're showing at the beginning mm-hmm. and then they kind of like make the picture like then we kind of zoom in like we it's we enter that. the picture Right. And now the picture expands out and we're seeing Middle Earth. Right. The times of Middle Earth that they say, as if Middle Earth is like the middle refers to some kind of epoch, like the Middle Ages. It's like it's it's like the Middle Ages, except it's the Middle Earth period. Uh, Right. right, How the narrator describes it, which is like kind of confusing and I think perhaps a little bit confused, actually. But um, as that's not what the middle in Middle Earth means, but. But but it's fine. Like whatever they're 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 introducing again. They're assuming we know nothing. But they tell us in the one sentence that you cited, right? The time of like when humans shared their world with elves and dwarves, paws and hobbits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we are given the clear context. We're given to understand hobbits. This is a fantasy race, just like elves and dwarves, right? So you know you know the kind of story that you're listening to. And you know the kind of thing that um, uh, that hobbits are, right? Again, they're not elves and they're not dwarves, but they're like that, right? Um, and we're going to come in. So it's interesting when he says that, when it goes on and, and, and talks about the narrator in the Rankin Bass goes on to talk about hobbit holes meaning comfort, right? And they're showing like the comfy furniture. And um, when he, I, as I recall, when he says, um, and that means comfort. Uh, he's showing his pipe collection, mm-hmm. um, very elaborate pipe, not only numerous but very long and elaborate pipes. Right, that he's that mm-hmm. he that he that he shows there. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's a visual cue. You know, we were talking about world building. That yes, you lose the power to create that imagination space um, Mm -hmm. when you're watching a film, but you have other ways to do that. So if you show me a cabinet of pipes, Mm -hmm. then you do kind of get to infer that there's a lot of leisure time in this community and there is an artistry about carving pipes and it's a collector's kind of vibe. And most geeks are going to understand the, the lore of collection and things like that. So there's other things that you can kind of pull out of a little visual cue like that. So it might just be a closet of pipes, but all of a sudden we're getting a lot of information from it. And that's the imagination part that we get to kind of fill in. So it's almost a backwards interpretation. 
Yeah. And I, I think about that, that second paragraph in the text, um, the, uh, the description of the whole, right? Um, one of the things that strikes me when I, and again, I think about the difference of how the Rankin Bass establishes the Hobbit, because they do, they do like a pan around, right? Around the, around the inside of Bag End there in the opening, in that opening sequence, um, when we're told about hobbits and we zoom in and we see the door, we see the round door with a knocker in the middle, though their choice to make his front door look exactly like an eyeball always yeah. I found really off. But that was it's a really, really fascinating visual choice by the Rankin Bass people. One of several very fascinating mm -hmm. visual choices sure. that yeah. they made. Um, but anyway, so we go in and we zoom around and they're d describing the, 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 the comfortable hobbit hole and that it's not. And they do a sort of a quotation of some of the chapter, the paragraph one stuff about not being a dry, sandy hole and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but anyway, one of the things that I'm thinking about here when thinking about the comparison in the tools, uh, the tool sets available. When we talked about the effect that the lists have. Right. Bedrooms, bathrooms, cellars, pantries, wardrobes, kitchens, dining rooms, all were on the same floor. Right. Um, you know, and even the, the 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 verbal description of things like with paneled walls and floors tiled and carpeted, provided with polished chairs and lots and lots of pegs for hats and coats. When we're reading that paragraph, which is a long paragraph, we, we spend some time there. Right. I mean, I think if you timed, even even for assuming, I mean, not just the time it takes to read it aloud, but even if you assume you're reading faster, um, silently in your head, it's got to be minimum a minute. It takes, I mean, some people read super fast, I know. But anyway, it takes a lot of time is what I'm saying. Proportionally, yeah. it, it's, you're, you're, it takes you a lot of time to take in all of these details piecemeal because that's the only way you can give them in words, right? In the film... That pan across the room takes, what, four seconds, five yeah. seconds, right? And we take in all these things. It shows, it's like you can see tiled floors and polished chairs and uh, mm -hmm. maybe paneled walls and certainly pegs and, and, and many other details that he's not, that he doesn't give us, right? Um, so we're given all of that. And then I'm coming back to the point you were making about the cabinet of pipes, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a detail that we're given in the text, but they zoom in on that in order to convey, like, our imagination is being prompted in some ways there. We're shown the visuals, right? We're not all, we're not left to just imagine what Bag End looks like on the inside. But we only get a, like a five second pan. We don't get, um, you know, we don't, we don't get to see, you know, yeah. rooms, dedicated to clothes right we don't see all of his pantries right we don't um and you don't have the luxury cutting across you but no, you also no. don't have the luxury reading reading you read that paragraph you put it down you walk away you're thinking about it it's sitting with you you have so much more time with a text yes that it sits with you. You can reread that paragraph if you need to. Like you can't do that with film. It's an onslaught. So yeah. there's no breather. So pacing is something you hear about loads with script development and stuff that your pacing needs to be effective 
so your viewers get a breath. Like they need a minute to kind of take stuff in. And if all of your edits are four seconds long, then there's no time for them to gather anything and they're overwhelmed and it's overstimulated and there's there's nothing to take in. Right. So yeah, there is there there are certain certain decisions that have to be made when taking the text and moving it into a visual medium that allow for that to happen. Showing me a cabinet of pipes, I might not in that moment infer all that stuff, right. but that would sit with me, you know? Like I might later on be like, oh, but they care about leisure time. And of course they brought their pipe with them. They had all right. the cabinet. Remember that, you right. know? Right. Right. Even even to some extent, the you know, uh, he was a very well-to-do Hobbit, right, detail that we get. Like, I have a whole cabinet dedicated to enormously elaborate pipes kind of mm -hmm. conveys well-to-do, right? We get that sense, um, as you pointed out, not just of wealth, but of leisure, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I uh, I don't just, like, smoke while I work, right? I, like, this is a this is a quiet, pa I'm going to now go and spend an hour in, in the yard just smoking and blowing smoke rings, which is what we see Bilbo do next, go out by his front and door he and blow smoke rings. brought like the biggest pipe he could find, right? <laughs> yes. Like that thing was massive. So <laughs> yes. there's also that kind of idea that it's like, you know, sometimes I choose my favorite mug and that's my hot cocoa mug and that's right. my tea mug and that's my coffee mug. Like there's specific things. Like right. I love that there's that kind of vibe that he looked at his closet and was like, that's the pipe I'm taking tonight. And it was this massive pipe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it is. Um, so again, one of the things that we can say in one sense, um, when we're comparing the approach that the Rankin Bass and the uh, Peter Jackson are taking is that one is like, seems to be trying to accomplish a lot more and, and, and the one is doing sort of more with less. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, really sort of suggesting a lot and not filling in the details. What do we know about the story? We know it's a fantasy story. Elves and dwarves get mentioned, right? And then the wizard shows up, and the, mm -hmm. wizard, the wizard shows up pretty early on, and the music indicates to us, right? Gandalf steps out literally from behind a tree, right? Mm -hmm. And then we get that, dun -dun -dun, you know, like, and it's suspenseful. Yeah, a minute and a half. Yeah. 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 It's, um, and it's clearly an interruption like it what is communicated i think from the very beginning from the very appearance of gandalf is like here is this different strange magical mysterious figure who is going to interrupt the quiet Literally, leisurely yeah. life of yeah. this hobbit right i mean i think that they they convey that really really effectively um mm -hmm. yeah and same with the dwarves who show up 40 seconds later just behind bushes, behind trees, you know, all of a sudden there's, there's a whole mess of interruptions in my yes. front yard. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. It turns out the whole, the landscape is just lousy with dwarves. Right. Um, <laughs> which shows like not everything is as it appears, right. Even in what looked like a quiet and empty countryside. In fact, the adventure was already creeping upon him. Right. And mm -hmm. he, uh, and he, and he didn't know. And that's um, not so much of a call to adventure as a like, Oh, right. Adventure is seizing you here. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Whereas, of course, in the book, the way that that proceeds is quite different. Right. The, the one of the things one of the sort of the essences of the comedy of the unexpected party um, at the beginning of The Hobbit is the gradualness with which it comes on. Right. We have the encounter with Gandalf, which is just like a social 
encounter as far as an awkward social encounter. Um, but Bilbo certainly doesn't think of it. I mean, he makes an, an appointment for tea uh, for the next Wednesday, but he doesn't even write it down in his appointment book. Right. He, he, he forgets about it completely. He's so flustered. Um, but that's all like at worst. This is going to this awkward conversation is going to lead to an awkward tea party next right. week. Right. Um, and then, of course, you have the dwarves coming one at a time and him not, you know, expecting them. Right. And until like they're all they're all there. Um, and then they're all having a meeting that he doesn't know what they're talking about or what's going on. Right. And he's trying to play along. I, so that, in other words, the whole shape of the chapter in the book is that it doesn't just all pounce upon us at once. <laughs> right. Um we're told that this is the story of how a hobbit had an adventure, but we don't really know what that means. And mm -hmm. although we're forewarned about that, it kind of comes across, comes upon us gradually as it comes upon Bilbo gradually. And the whole, again, the comedy of the beginning of the Hobbit is even down to the beginning of chapter two, when he suddenly finds himself running down, you know, uh, Bilbo never never did, you know, remember how he ended up running down the path, you know, without his hat or his pocket handkerchiefs or anything, uh, right, to go on the adventure and meet up with the dwarves. Um, and that is a thing that none of them, none of the adaptations choose to really play on that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they try to do the gradual thing a little bit in the Peter Jackson film. Um, but we don't get, you'll remember the famous, um, the famous moment, uh, that's one of the most famous images, I think, from the first Peter Jackson Hobbit film is that image of Bilbo running down the path with the contract in his hand saying, I'm going on an adventure, right? And you it know, turned into one of the best memes ever. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like that's a, that was a, a highly memeable moment. Right. That was a really big deal. And it's utterly in conflict with the Bilbo mm -hmm. of the text. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the way in which the Bilbo of the film embraces the adventure like, makes the yes, spontaneous, but deliberate decision. Right. Um, uh, to go on an adventure um, is 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 quite different from the Bilbo of the film, right? They're, they're, or the, 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 the Bilbo of the book. Um, they're doing something. They're doing something very different now. Why? How do they? How do they set that up? Right. Think, this is where all of those other minutes in the Peter Jackson film come in, right? And this is where it starts to be a really interesting exercise of comparison. For adaptation and why we avoid comparison so much in this podcast because that's not what we're doing you know right. we're not we're not trying to show you all the differences right but what we're doing here like this this thing is is looking at the differences that exist and why they made it that way yes. and how that changes our own interpretation so like when you're talking about the Rankin bass that's often referred to as the better adaptation People say it's such a it's it's a great adaptation. It's so it's, it's so a true. Very faithful it's adaptation, so, people. Very faithful, very, very accurate. Say. Yeah. That's their measure. So yes, if you're talking about a good adaptation being faithful, mm -hmm. then that is a good adaptation. If you're talking about a good adaptation having 
excellent visual effects or a deeper story that can stretch over three films or, you know, whatever else, then that's what Jackson was doing. There are just different ways to interpret the same thing. Absolutely. That's why it's such a cool exercise to take a look at this because we have the same text. We're doing two very different things with it. But I think both films would be considered successes and tra- tragedies in, <laughs> in different ways. ways. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's true. And here, here's the thing that I would point out. Can you make the case that the opening of the Rankin and Bass film is, a, is following the text very, very closely? Oh, yeah, I could make that argument all day long. Right. Yeah. Um, stuff we've already talked about, the narrator, the whole the 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 the, the Middle Earth frame, the the way that it sets up Bilbo and Bag End and everything. There's so much of that um, where we can see they're looking carefully at what the text does in those opening paragraphs. And they're trying to do a similar kind of thing, though doing it in their different way. Right. There is translation there, like with the description of Bag End. Paragraph two. There's no parallel to paragraph two because paragraph two is doing text things, right? Um, they do that 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 choice of the of the 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 pipe cabinet, right? Does accomplish many of those same things, but it's doing it in film language, right? In visual language rather than in verbal language. However, do you want to make an argument that the Rankin Bass film is radically departing from the book? I can make that argument too. Right. You could I could easily say, as I was just kind of implying, that the Rankin Bass film completely misses the point of chapter one. Like I could say if I go chapter by chapter through The Hobbit and say, like, okay, here's here's what seems to be taking a chunk of the story and ask thinking of the same kind of questions we've asked before. Like, what is the core of this story? Right. The core of the unexpected party. They don't do at all. They totally skip that. Right. The gradualness, the way that adventure brings in how Bilbo, a respectable hobbit, finds himself on an adventure that he never intended to go on. Right. The film doesn't even attempt that. It just has everybody show up at Bilbo's house. I mean, there, I, I should I guess. I should be careful to say it doesn't even attempt it, but it doesn't do um Yeah, it's complicated. But I, I would still say, like, I do not think that the yeah. essence of the unexpected party is really accomplished. Um, even just in the way the the Rankin Bass Bilbo never gets flustered, right? He is part of it is just like the voice acting, right? The, he just the, it. Yeah, he's always just like, um, oh well, like he'll make some wry comments and stuff like that, but he doesn't he never gets flustered, even down to my least favorite line of Rankin Bass Bilbo, which is when he, in the moment, which is one of the most crucial, most moving moments in the entire Hobbit. That is the leap in the dark when he's jumping over Gollum because of the pity that he has for him. And he doesn't want to stab him to death um, unfairly uh, in the dark. Um, The way that the Rankin, the Rankin Bass has Bilbo, um, uh, instead say ta-ta uh, to Gollum as he jumps over him, right? This sort of like m- the, the the mockery, mockery? yeah, yeah. Um, of Gollum in that moment. Oh, it's a horrible. It's my wor- That's one of my very least favorite parts of the entire film. Then there, there are ways in which you can feel your inside cringing. Oh, it's horrible. It. It's hor- It's just t- so tone deaf to what's going on in the in yeah. the book at that time. And there are similarly tone-deaf moments in the chapter one material where Bilbo, his reaction to 
wizard and dwarves descending upon him in his home is very, very casual, right? In the same way, they just don't do the experience of Bilbo and therefore of us as well. Remember, the book puts us next to Bilbo, right? We're occupying that hole in the middle of the narrative and then Bilbo is put into it and we're right there with him all the way through. And we too, like as we are, as Bilbo is having this adventurous world, you know, we started this home base, like all these things that are familiar to us about his hole and about his society and everything else. And then adventure starts to break into it. Wizards and dwarves and dragons and um, goblins are referred to and things like that, right? All these things break in and they're new to us as well and we're processing it and maybe a little bit flustered and a little bit uncertain just the way that Bilbo was. Um, and again, we're just, it, it, we don't get any of that feeling of it in the Rankin-Bass film. Um, and, yeah. and this also illustrates the risk that we have when we're constantly comparing because if I know this text so well and I'm looking at these two examples and both of them are pissing me off for different reasons, that's where things get really problematic because yes. if you look at the Jackson one, they're not trying to be faithful to the text. They're trying to tell a story yeah. and they're trying to tell a story knowing that most of the people watching this story know a lot about yes. a previous story. So they're working all that in. They're also taking one small text and stretching it over three films. So they're trying to give it a lot bigger foundation than what we have gotten from The Hobbit. Absolutely. So all of a sudden the bar is raised, but it's also broadened and they mm -hmm. have a lot more work to do, but they still just want to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. That's where you have to kind of suspend it of like, don't do the comparison. Be aware of the comparison, but try to just engage with what you're being told. Shelve exactly. the comparison and just watch this thing. <laughs> exactly. Because when mm. we think about those exact elements, right, the different thing that the Rankin-Bass film is doing in that moment, right, Bilbo is casual. We, as viewers, are also supposed to be, like, they handle in a sentence, right? This is back in the time when humans lived alongside elves and dwarves and hobbits. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. So accept right? it. Yeah, <laughs> accept it. We're moving on, right? Mm -hmm. We're now constantly moving into this fantasy and world. And that belief. Yep. Let's go. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And maybe you'll come along and maybe you won't, but they're going to assume you're going to all the way through, mm -hmm. right? So they don't need to be as gentle with this, right? And of course, this was done in the 60s. I was going to say, there's not as much at risk, you no. know? It's a multi-million dollar Yes franchise that could crash and burn or have you know the vitriol judgment of online based fans and their reactions so the <laughs> risks are just a lot lower it feels right. more like an after school special that right. you tune in for and hope for a happy story rather than the epic event yes. that the yes. hobbit was aiming to be absolutely speaking of which there's our other like the bulk of that 13 minutes Right. What is Peter Jackson trying to accomplish? We talked about one of the two things that he's trying to accomplish, which is to ground the Hobbit, to frame the Hobbit within the world of like directly, not just within the world, but within the plot of the Fellowship of the Ring. In the timeline. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But in addition to that, he is also trying to establish the epic sweep of the story. Right. Like I said, we are supposed to be thinking totally different things like the impression that he wants Richard Armitage to have when he steps in the door of Bag End in the uh, in the Jackson film is supposed to be very, very different from 
the rea- the reaction we have to Thorin Oak and Shield in the book. He's going for a totally different reaction there, right? Yeah. The entire story has been contextualized in this new way. What is the story about? The story is about tragedy, right? This like the 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 fall of this people and the um you know the the, the destruction by the dragon. The, these people now living, you know, displaced as refugees. Um, and the tension between them and the elves, right? We've got, like, this whole political thing with the elves oh, and the dwarves there. It's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we, this is the world that we're in. And, and we're contextualizing this is all in Bilbo's voice, right? Bilbo is telling us this. We see Bilbo at his familiar desk. In fact, it's the same shot of Bilbo, right? I mean, I don't know... I haven't compared them, but it looks like exactly the same shot that we get of the back of Bilbo while he's at his writing desk in the opening mm-hmm. scenes of The Fellowship of the Ring, right? When he's calling over his shoulder to tell Frodo to answer the door, right? Yep. Um, I mean, if it's not the very same shot, it's almost it's the same the, theme. The same it's shot. the same book. It's, yeah. I'm sure it's the same outfit, you know, yes. like they would definitely plan that down to the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... So they they start with that context, but again, then we're building in like there's this whole other story that you don't know, right? There's this whole other. Ba- let's get into let's let's do the prequel thing, right? Let's tell you this earlier chapter, and Bilbo's narrator voice says he's addressing Frodo, right? Like indirectly, Frodo's not in the room, but his narrator voice is address- addressing Frodo and saying that he's going to tell the story as he should have told it. Right. There's this sense of regret. Like, I didn't tell you the story before. I ought to yeah, have told you the story. Yeah. yeah. And that, you can see why they would do that. That's quite engaging to the audience to be like, oh, wait, there's something I don't know. But it does feel a little like, ooh, I'm a shady character, which doesn't quite well, buy. But though it works in the sense of um, we know that Bilbo has the ring and it's going to have a hard time later that same day uh giving up the ring yeah. right and and leaving it for frodo um so what he's telling of course is the origin story of his relationship with the ring in large part that's one of the major you know uh themes of the hobbit or you know sort of uh subtext of the hobbit story um but um and so we and of course he's there's the thing from the book right at the beginning of the fellowship of the ring when we are told that Bilbo originally lies about what happened in his adventure um, and only tells the truth when Gandalf forces him to. So this idea of a ring-induced dishonesty by Bilbo about his story, it's out there, right? Like, and even if people don't, if people who know the text will recognize that. People, Even people who don't know the text, though, um, will remember that Bilbo was affected by the ring and had that struggle with Gandalf at the be- in the beginning of the first film. So once again, the beginnings of the f- two films are being tied together, but they're being tied together in a way that says, now we're going to go behind that. Like, mm-hmm. where did Bilbo's issue with the ring that we saw at the beginning of, cha- of, of the Fellowship film, where did that come from? How did that begin? Right? Let's go to the origin story there. Um, or at least more of the origin story than we were given in the prologue with Kate Blanchett, um, right. you know, of the first film with Bilbo finding the ring and Gollum losing it. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so it's epic dwarf history story, right? Um, 
set within the hub. Like we're told this, these are all the things that are at stake, right? Look at these high, you know, the, 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 the destinies of people and the, 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 the destinies and well-beings of people, even the future uh, dragon sickness of Thorin is set up in the, his Thorin's concerns for Thor, his grandfather. Um, uh, and then of course, uh, the, the, the coming of the dragon, um, which is heavily interlaced with references to the song, the dwarf song that they sing. Um, and they go on to sing it, or at least some of it, um, later on in the film, um, in, but I, think is unquestionably the best scene in the first film uh the song that song is the best part of the first film um but despite the fact that that song is the best part of the first film they don't leave the song to do its work Mm. right they don't leave the song to do this work rather they start us off um and boy what a classic example right in chapter one of the hobbit we get the song which tells the story of the glory of the of the dwarves of the lonely mountain and the coming of the dragon and the tragedy and the loss um and their desire for vengeance and to recover their lost treasure all of those things are told us in the song right um but then they're told us again in prose when bilbo asks for the thing to be explained and thorin says didn't you hear our song right so we get it twice we get it once in in the song and then we get it again in prose as thorin tells the story later on um but the story which is itself altered right i mean it's we're we're told much more and many different things about the backstory uh in the opening of the film but that all gets put into a prologue it's not part of the initial encounter with bilbo um it's something that we as viewers are being brought into from the beginning it's provided to us as context right um and that's a very particular choice that mm-hmm. uh, that that they make, which has a big impact on what we see with the rest of it, right? It's placed initially within that Hobbit frame, Bilbo's narration, right? But then that itself becomes um, part of the... Th- anyway, it's... Um, uh, it shows you the different scope of the story. Lots of interesting decisions. Yeah. yeah. Lots of interesting decisions, and and again, perfectly defensible ones. But but it, it it shows you what is different from the very beginning about how they're approaching it. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. I know Maggie, as you say, you're always thinking about when you're thinking film. You're always thinking about things like connection to audience and and even business questions and production questions and stuff like that. I'm always wanting to ignore those, right? That's um, why this works. Yeah, I'm, I'm always <laughs> wanting to ignore those. Uh, uh, and here, here's the main reason why I'm always wanting to ignore them, is that I, f- and I've talked about this many times in many different ways, but I feel like those are often given as explanations when they're not an explanation, they're a discussion topic, right? Exactly, um, yeah. Like, again, when people will say, oh, they only did this because it was a money grab. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, OK, but that's not analysis. That's right. 
that's that's a fact that might be just a an thing. assertion like yeah right okay so let's run with that let's say they were just trying to maximize how much money they made which they were just pandering to fans they were just pandering well, to, what they, does that mean how they did they pandering? did want to make their fans happy so right. there might be some right. of that you know which fans how are they pandering where do we mm -hmm. see this how does that affect things right mm -hmm. um same thing with the like with the money thing so i know that that's why i tend to I tend to like shy away from those discussions because I feel like they, they rarely, at least in my experience, they've, they, they, they tend to be a way that people wave their hands at issues rather than actually addressing issues. Um, but anyway, uh, so when we think about, and I know we're over time here now, but I want to just come back. I want to end with thinking about how, like what the Peter Jackson film is trying to do and how it's doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, what it's doing is clearly wanting to establish this story, not just to establish the link in the sense of like we want to do fan service, but also like we want you to know that this story you're about to hear, you're about to watch is the same kind of story. Like mm -hmm. it's the same scope, like expect a sweeping epic story. Yeah. Yes, um, it is. big. It does involve lots of races and a lot of challenges and a lot of conflict. And mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, that's the kind of story that you should be expecting. And this, I think, is one of the things, this is the, I feel like, one of the departures that people had a really hard time with. And one of the reasons why people would say, oh, well, like, again, when you just look at the openings, man, the Rankin-Bass opening is so much more faithful to the opening of The Hobbit than the Peter Jackson is, is faithful to the opening of The Hobbit. Um, but that's like a difference in project, right? Like that if you're going to do... The Hobbit as a real prequel story to The Lord of the Rings, which it's not a prequel story. Um, there is such a huge difference between a story which is a sequel to an earlier story and then going back and rereading that earlier story, which is um, to which the later story is the sequel, and telling a prequel to an established story. Right. This was an issue I had all the way through that era because everybody like journalists kept referring to The Hobbit as a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, like the book yeah. as a prequel to The Lord of the Rings book. And I'm like, it was not a prequel like the whole point. By the way, fun fact, did you know Tolkien invented the word prequel? No, I did not. He did. He used it. One of the first people I know to ever use it, actually. <laughs> fun fact. Um, but anyway, uh, it's not a prequel. Um it was um, it was a um, uh, sorry that got it that, that got the attention of some that people got, in the comments. That got a big old yeah, reaction. no, it was it was really it was really it's really interesting. Where did we come across that? It was in the history of Middle Earth, um, where Tolkien he he says it as if he's coining it, like he thought he was the first one. It's other people might have independently used it, as far as I know, um, but when he wrote it, he thought he was making up that word. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was in the context of talking about Silmarillion stuff, of course. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'm trying to remember, somebody may remember who was, it was in the, it was in the Mythgard Academy and we were looking at the history of Middle Earth and we came across that and I was like, holy cow, I'd have to go back and <laughs> look at my notes and the, my slides and things to try to remember where that was. But, um, um, anyway, yeah, 
Um, yeah, he didn't he didn't mean it as a prequel, right? He meant it as yeah. another epic story. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So the, anyway, but the um, the point is a prequel. It's a totally different genre, right? Because mm-hmm. it's it's it is a story which chronologically takes place prior to right. It is an origin story. It it but at it absolutely does not like it is also a story which comes after like which is written after which depends upon you know that original story the hobbit itself of course is entirely um uh is entirely independent um uh is entirely independent of it um yeah anyway um there you go. Eric is coming up with a, a thing. And it worked with Reboot. Yeah. It's, no, it's, I think it's in the War of the Jewels. Um, so anybody who has a digital text of the War of the Jewels could look it up. Um, I mean, I could do it too, but we're already over time and I'm not going to take I know, time I was like, that. next um, time, folks, next time. But, um, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, again, I'm not saying he's necessarily the first one in the world to coin the world word, but he totally coined the word. Um, uh, coined the word. I don't, I don't know that he popular. I don't think he popularized it, but he, he coined yeah. it. Um, That's anyway. Okay. So, so sum up for today, sum up homework for, today. for next week. Okay. Up for today. I feel like we don't have like a clear, concise bullet points thing. It's more of just, I love that we're starting this a little bit of actual analysis of comparison because it took us a year to say you shouldn't compare and here's why. And now we're comparing, but not for the reasons everybody wants us to. <laughs> yeah. So, it's all to create tools in your toolkit and to take a look at construction and storytelling and reception and all these other things that I, I guess I sometimes wish I could take the business stuff out of my mind, but I don't. I think <laughs> it's, it's okay. Really, yeah. Yeah. No. And I think it's really important too, it because is. a 1977 animated after school special kind of vibe for 88 minutes is just innately going to be massively different yeah. than a web 2.0 interactive digital media, you know, multi-million dollar. I'm making a crazy face, but I'm still here, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I do think that's important to take into consideration because it will change how a story is told. Yes. And how a story is received. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And I think about it just, if you want like a small scale, like I was just thinking about there's one lecture that I've given 200 times I'm sure you know like I've I've given this lecture over and over and over and over and over again I gave this lecture once at a Harry Potter convention and my audience already knew everything I didn't have to do any (laughs) of the groundwork that I usually have to do so all of a sudden that lecture that I'd given 200 times was just elevated to the next level because my audience was already at a different baseline yes so Hobbit coming in with a different baseline then Rankin Bass coming yes. in, you're already starting yes. with a really different kettle of fish. So you're going to tell the story in a different way. Yeah. 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 And my favorite thing from today was starting again, as I said at the beginning, we, I want to build some tools and vocabulary. Like what do we see? How does it, we've compared adaptation to translating from one language to another, right? How is it like that? Exactly. What are some of the ways and what are some of the things you do, you can do in writing that you can't do in film and vice versa. Right. Um, so we started to see some of those things and that was a lot of fun. Next time, Fellowship of the Ring. Um, once again, three sources. Let's look at the book. Um, let's look at the book. Let's look at the uh, the Peter Jackson film and let's look at the Bakshi film. 
And I want to be looking, I want to primarily be looking at the opening of chapter one. Um, Again, the extended edition does the concerning hobbits thing, right? But it's not, uh, well, so we'll think about the prologue too. If you want, you can reread the prologue uh, to to get yourself ready for that. Um, we'll kind of look at both, but the what I'm more interested in the Peter Jackson film is not a close comparison between the text of the prologue and the text and the and the that scene those scenes um, in the film, but like why they choose to include them and how. So we'll talk some about the prologue stuff too. You can't talk about it without that, I think. But um, but I want to focus especially on the beginning of the narrative. Um, uh, the actual narrative of the story in the beginning of chapter one, a long expected party. All right. Um, uh, very good. So we'll, um, uh, we'll, we'll do fellowship of the ring next time. And then we're going to move on to some other non Tolkien stuff as well. Um, we said we wanted to do, uh, we wanted to do pride and prejudice. We're thinking of doing pride and prejudice and Dune as well, looking at some different adaptations. Um, and we'll give you homework for those next week so we can tell you which 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 films to look at there uh, as well as the book. All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Maggie. <laughs> and we will uh, we'll have fun talking about fellowship next week. Here, I'll leave you on a dead dog. <laughs> a little twitches. I go. You woke up. <laughs> Night, gang. All right. Bye now.